Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome to the Reliability Matters podcast. I'm so glad you're with me today. This is episode number 96. As I said in our previous episode, we're getting very close, only four more episodes to number 100. For our 100th episode, we're going to do something that we've never done before. Our 100th episode will be live. It will be broadcast live on LinkedIn and YouTube on July 26th at 10 o'clock a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. We'll replay clips from several of our prior episodes and hear a few comments from some of our past guests. As we creep ever so close to episode 100, I want to thank my guests and you, our listeners and viewers of this podcast. Without all of you, I would just be a talking head. And Lord knows we have enough talking heads these days. If you're watching this on YouTube, click on the subscribe button and click the bell icon to be notified when new episodes are released, including our 100th episode. If you want to watch our 100th episode on LinkedIn, just follow me on LinkedIn. If you're watching this on YouTube, the link to my LinkedIn profile is right down below. Just click the show more button. If you're listening to this podcast on your podcast app, just click on the show notes for my LinkedIn information. A couple of episodes ago, I talked to Dr. and Professor Ron Lasky about a couple of books that he wrote. We also talked about a book he didn't write. That book is entitled Troubleshooting Electronic Assembly, Wisdom from the Board Talk Crypt by industry gurus Phil Zaro and Jim Hall, available on Amazon. Both, by the way, were prior guests on this show. Well, today we'll have a conversation with Phil and Jim about their book. If you've been in the electronics industry for more than a few seconds, there's little doubt that you've at least heard of, if not met, Phil Zaro and Jim Hall. Phil has been involved with the PCB fabrication and assembly industry for more than 35 years. Phil is the president and principal consultant of ITM Consulting. His partner in crime, Jim Hall, has been involved in the electronic assembly industry for the past 26 years. He's a principal consultant and resident Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt with ITM Consulting. He's also an instructor in the Lean Six Sigma programs offered at Dartmouth College. Together with Dr. Ron Lasky, Phil and Jim designed the SMTA's SMT Process Certification course. Phil and Jim also host the popular audio series Board Talk, which is available through Circuit Insight. Here's my conversation with Phil and Jim. Well, welcome. Welcome to Reliability Matters, or I should say, welcome back to Reliability Matters. I'm glad you guys are with me today. Hello, Mike. It's good to be with you. Good to be here, Mike. Thanks yeah, for same. having us. Of course, of course. Well, thanks for agreeing or being voluntold or, or being arm twisted or whatever the case may be. Um, so this happened, right? This happened. This, uh, this is a, uh, 272 pages of the unique, uh, well, the wisdom and the unique humor of, of Phil and Jim, the, uh, the Assembly Brothers. Um, before we get into your book, uh, What's going on? The last time we uh, we were on this, you were on the show. Uh, you guys were pretty locked down. The world was pretty locked down, and as troubleshooters and consultants that 
have a history of going into facilities and um, you know investigating and finding out what's what the problem is and what the solution is. Um, that's really difficult to do when when you're uh, when you're locked down. Uh, training is difficult to do, or challenging anyway when you're locked down. How did you guys get through that? I assume things are back open again and you're you know getting on airplanes and and doing all that. But uh, tell me what that experience was like for you guys. Well, initially, you know, when the COVID hit and everything closed down, you know, we were afraid, uh-oh, business is going to flatline now. Um, as it turned out, there there were some instances per, particularly related to uh, healthcare equipment related to COVID where uh, um, there's no substitute for being on site. We, you know, basically put on the mask, got on the planes, walked through the very empty airports and uh, were on site. Um, but a lot of the other stuff, of course, we did remotely uh, as much as possible. And um, yeah, we made it through. We're uh, you know, still kicking and thriving. And Mike, if you recall, interestingly enough, um, right, I think my, one of my last gigs right before as COVID was uh, kicking in and the state of California was closing down, you and I, I was out in Orange County and you and I were going to get together for, for dinner. And uh you, uh, you, you you called me back and said, Phil, every, every place is closing down. There's there's nothing, you know, nothing available for for dining. So we wound up uh, in a parking lot and uh, having In-N-Out burgers in the uh, in, in your SUV. In the front but seat of my car, up. right, right. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, couldn't the ambiance, yeah. Very yeah, cool. yeah, service was a little bad, but the food was good, right? <laughs> yeah, great conversation, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, I remember that. I, I was calling around, um, you know, to find a restaurant that was open and at, yeah, that, that was a couple days after California officially shut down. So there was a few restaurants that quite didn't get the memo yet, but I, I couldn't get into those. So yeah, that was an interesting meeting. And that was uh, kind of the precursor of the next crazy two years, right? I mean, that was just, that was just a, a, a small preview of things to come. Uh, Jim, uh, did you guys do virtual courses uh, before um, COVID hit? And were you able to just, you know, turn back on the virtual machine or what, what was that experience like? Uh, yes, we've done virtual courses online for some time, but um, I have to say that that was, even that was very restricted during the, um, at least the first year of COVID. Um, and then it opened up a little more but now, fortunately, uh, trade shows like um, SMTAI and, and Apex are operating um, in the uh, not in not virtually, and um, so we've been able to go to those and do live workshops again. But it was um, significantly re teaching in general was definitely restricted during the um, the uh, higher more intense times of the COVID lockdowns. Right. So you, in addition to your, your daily activities at ITM, uh, where you guys are consultants and troubleshooters and trainers and all of that, you've got, uh, you've got a few um, side hustles going on, uh, all kind of related to, to uh, ITM. Uh, and one of them is uh, you produce a, an audio series. I would call it a podcast. Traditionally speaking, it's, it's not really a podcast, but it's very similar to that because it's not on podcast apps. It's on uh, one particular website, circuitinsight.com. Uh, but it's a show you've been doing probably well before podcasts were around um, called Board Talk. And it, uh, it kind of mimics uh, or plays homage to 
the NPR car talk show, radio show, where two semi-nutty guys, uh, mechanics in that case, uh, with, with very peculiar and odd sense of humor, uh, provide uh, a call-in format where people call in and, and say their car is making a strange sound, and then they try and diagnose you know, what that means and, and all of that. Uh, your show is very similar to that uh, in terms of style, which is a real standout in this industry. There are, I can count on half a hand how many people in this industry that are teachers, that are speakers, professional speakers, uh, that are both informative and uh, entertaining. <laughs> they usually get one or the other. Um, you guys uh, are able to, to uh, get away with both. Uh, so uh, tell me about the Board Talk Show. How did that start? And how long has it been going on? And, and you know, just give me a little bit of uh, a background on that show. Well, first off, I'd like to give the ultimate credit to Phil, my brother Phil. Um, Phil, for the long time, Phil has a great sense of humor and um, uh, looks at the art industry and says, uh, you know, we're a wonderful high-tech industry, but we take ourselves way too seriously. And our whole industry would be a lot better off if we could laugh more, in particular, if we could laugh at ourselves more. And that being his basic philosophy, he looked at Car Talk, saw what they were doing and said, let's do it um, for um, our, our industry. Oh, very good. So this was Phil. We can blame Phil or thank Phil, depending upon what you think of the show. Thank Phil. Thank Phil. So we, we were, Jim and I, first of all, have known each other for, uh, I think, close to maybe exceeding 40 years. Lost count a long time ago. And um, we were both, you know, big fans of Car Talk. Uh, and uh, when I first moved to uh, New England uh, from California, one of the first things Jim took me, uh, took me to was to Cambridge. And, uh, Our fair city. Our fair city, or their fair city, and uh, we're in Harvard Square, and he points to a building. No, 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 Phil, come on, you're at Harvard Square. Harvard Square. Harvard Square. And he points to this building. It was near the yard, and there was not a lot of garbage. There you go. He points to this building, and on the third floor window, it said Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. And this was Mecca, as far as we're concerned. This was this is where the the brothers' office was. Of course, their broadcasting was a studio uh, in uh, a little bit a little bit further away. Um, and then, then Jim also took me down the road to uh, the um, the Good News Garage, which is the garage they're always referring to that that the brothers owned. And uh, it was it was what built in the twenties or thirties. Uh, you know, you could just see some some guy in the background look like Krusty the mechanic, and you're waiting for a car to fall off the lift any minute, exactly as they depicted it. Um, and then many years later, I was very fortunate in that um, uh, NPR was having a fundraiser. And uh, they said, for this much donation, you get a you know, recording of our bumper music. Well, I had that already. They said, for X amount of money, you can have lunch with the car talk guys. I go, oh, you got to be kidding me. So, um, you know, I figured, well, ITM could definitely, you know, afford a donation to NPR. And um, so ultimately, they went down there. It was like a Wednesday afternoon. And uh, we met at the studios uh, where they were recording this. And uh, they, 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 it was like 75 people showed up, a number of people from the Midwest, uh, Southeast, and course major from new england and they split us up in a group of 25 each and they took us on a tour at one point in time we turned this corner and all of a sudden there they were it's a little glass studio donut in one hand coffee in the other cackling over some lady who's transaxle on her sob and falling out or something and uh, I, I i was just totally mesmerized i mean here are the people i actually um you know 
I, I, I've never been really cared about any celebrities, but these guys. So um, then we um, ultimately, they, 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 they continued the tour dragging me along. Uh, a little bit later, they take us out to this banquet room. We're sitting, sitting around. I'm sitting at this table and a few other people, guy from MIT, which is you know, their old uh, you know, uh, alma mater, a couple other people. And um, all of a sudden, lady announces that uh, the brothers are coming in. They just finished their show. So they came in. And uh, with their entourage, you usually hear it about. Those of you who remember Card Talk. And um, I thought they were going to stand up front and answer questions. They go, no, nah, we just did it. We just did a broadcast. we got to eat. And they go grab some food. Next thing I know, empty chair, Tom sits down on one side, Ray on the other. And I, I, it just can't get any any better than this. And so I had I had major conversation with Ray, who, by the way, worked in our industry uh, many, many years ago uh, between other stints. So um, definitely an empathy for us. And um, brother yeah. from another mother, uh, yeah, basically. So, I told at the time, uh, we, we had something we were starting to do called board talk, and at the time, it existed as a uh, session at uh, SMTAI. And basically, uh, for paying a fee that would go to the scholarship fund, uh, come in and um, we would we would have some soapbox or rant or you know, whatever topical information, and people could ask us questions. This is more like stump the chumps, but uh, that was a start. From there, our um, present, our publisher, uh, Jeff Ferry, um, who published Circuit Insight, uh, basically said, there's got to be a way of, of making this broadcastable. So um, it was, um, he, he figured it out. And that's uh, basically evolved into the podcast uh, that we do now. Um, fast forward uh, 10 years, and all of a sudden I realized we were, we, we'd been doing these for, for 10 years. We had over 200 episodes. And uh, the interesting thing about it was the information uh, wasn't stale because a lot of times Jeff will recirculate old episodes. And I try to listen for clues where we were, where and when we recorded it. And it was still pertinent information. And I go, wow. So either we give really timely information or <laughs> we're really vague or something in between. So, um, or you're terrible at providing answers, so people keep ha having the same questions, right? Yeah, I mean, come on. No, you guys are great at, at answers. Um, yeah. So that so it's been a de over a decade now of, of board mm -hmm. talk yeah. uh, over two hundred episodes as you just mentioned uh, that's a lot of questions I've I've listened to many of your of your responses they're easy to listen to because they're usually two or three minutes long they're usually you know it's not a commitment you don't have to clear your schedule uh, to do that uh, and and they've always been very topical and you're right there is a, a little bit of consistency in the types of questions. Uh, and that's that's an interesting thing in our industry. We we tend to kind of suffer from Groundhog Day. Uh, you know, on this show, there was a a season where we talked about voiding, uh, and and the more we talked about it, the more we talked about it. It just kept coming up. Uh, and and there's all sorts of subjects I think that just don't go away. They won't die. You know, we don't solve them. Uh, I don't know what it is. Information block or or whatever well, but mike yeah i think that um part of it uh, maybe a substantial part is the demographics of the technical people in our industry many people like phil and myself got um started in the early 80s uh when surface mount was taking off and electronic manufacturing was growing very quickly um and uh we're still around uh, many of us uh, although many of our sir um you know our age are retiring uh, and unfortunately, in the interim, in the 80s and 90s, particularly the 90s and, and into the turn of the century, um, 
the industry, um, a lot of offshoring was going on. And we, we didn't attract a lot of new technical process engineer type troubleshooters to the industry. Uh, the old guys like us hung on. And now we're seeing a gap in information as um, electronics grows in this country, in the US in particular, but around the world in general. Um, uh, a lot There isn't a lot of that uh, expertise. And older processes like wave soldering, we are continually amazed at the number of questions we get about wave soldering. But at one point, Phil and I said, you know, that's because um, it doesn't go away. And most of the people who developed it, optimized it, and um, you know, evolved it are gone. So the young people um, have to run these wave soldering processes and um, where do they get um, information? So they send questions to us. Yeah, that was actually, we were, uh, thanks for providing that segue. That was a few questions down my list, but let's go there now. There, you know, we've talked on this show before and, and other venues of the silver tsunami, the, the retiring of, of uh, experience. You always uh, had a word with words, Mike. Ah, those aren't my words. I, uh, those words were given to me by, I think Phil Stoughton said those words to me. But anyway, someone did, and someone probably said them to him. Um, but the, you know, the retiring, the, the um, gentrification of our industry and this void that that's created, because it, it's not one-to-one. -one. one person doesn't walk out the door as one person walks in the door. Ten people walk out the door before one person walks in the door, and that's created this void. Uh, so we have two issues. Number one, we have... The wise sages, and I'll say, you know, the Dave Hillman's, Doug Paul's type people of the world that are subject matter experts for their for their company worldwide. Um, they're, you know, eventually uh, one of them has already left. One of them is is you know has been threatening for the last decade to 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 go. Um, but when they go, so so does a lot of the the secret recipe information, and. They're not being replaced, at least not that I can see. Perhaps they are, but, but, but not generally replaced with one more super sage person, right? They're, maybe they're passing their information on to a team of people, but, the, but they're definitely taking away some, some valuable information with them that probably not one person knows where all the process skeletons are buried. Mm -hmm. And that's one problem. The other, uh, the other problem is the industry will now rely on consultants, good. Vendors, maybe good, maybe not good. You know, if you ask me a question, it doesn't matter what the question is, the answer is always cleaning, right? The answer is always cleaning. Well, yeah, I mean, see the Maslow's theory, right? You know, if all you have is a hammer, everything's a bed of nails. Everything to me is clean or dirty. Um, but that creates a, you know, a little bit of a potential conflict of interest to answer some of those technical questions because they're going to the people who have, a, uh, who have a horse in the race, right? And then the other issue is the people coming in, graduating college with their electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, technician, trade school, whatever, whatever education they're bringing to the table, uh, they're coming in pretty green. And colleges teach electronic theory. They know they can read you know, the, the color bands on a resistor but they may not know how much squeegee pressure to set the stencil printer to, or they may not know how to use a, an oven profiler, or you know how to adjust the uh, the foam flux head on a on an old wave solder machine, an old Hollis wave solder machine, or the oil intermix of a, of that particular brand of machine. Things that only old folks would would really know, right? Um, so, have you seen that information gap? Is it a perpetual 
problem because yeah. people are always falling off the cliff and new people are coming in to take their place. Uh, how does that land on your doorstep? And what are some of the remedies to, um, to maybe better prep people entering this industry or, or better memorialize the information before people leave the industry? How do you guys deal with that? I mean, that's, that's right in your wheelhouse right there, right? Right. But, well, first off, just to put things in that perspective of the, uh, uh, the aging and everything, um, uh, and, and, and talking about these, these uh, tin whiskers I have up here, um, a while back we were we were teaching at some big venue. It was either SMTAI or Apex. I believe it was Apex, one of our courses. And at one point in time, I'm trying to give an example. Well, HP did this study back in 1985. You guys remember what boards looked like in 1985? My God, the smallest reporter we had to deal with was 0805, and we didn't have BGAs yet. And Jim says, Phil, most of these people weren't even born in 1985. Whoa, sobering moment. So yeah, and, and we, we we've seen these the, you know the various stages you know the industry when we first started really outsourcing big time and really big time overseas and we saw this erosion of the engineers um, and and for some reason I guess <laughs> Jim and I will tell you some reason uh, engineering is not considered a glamorous profession these days I think we're making a little progress uh, three cheers for STEM for one thing uh, but uh, yeah it's. It's a dilemma. I mean, it's uh, it's a, it's a head scratcher, Jim. And Mike, the, the obvious question is: we look at continually at what other courses we can put together to meet these needs. Um, you know, the, you see this every you know it being reflected. Uh, the SMTA we've supported that extensively. We teach for them. We've helped develop their process engineering thing. They're expanding that into many other areas. Um, and the IPC on a different track is is really getting into trying to fill this gap, but it is, it's a real problem. And, um, you know, we try to, to do as much as we can to support it. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. With our own offerings. Right. Right. Let's, uh, let's talk about the, the, the show board talk and, and the, um, the book that came out of that, uh, electronic, uh, troubleshooting electronic assembly wisdom from the board talk crypt. I like the title. Uh, is there a, well, first of all, what type of questions? Give me the, just a sampling of the array of different subject matters that you, uh, you get on your show and then subsequently your book. It, it starts right from the beginning with PCB questions about surface finishes and PCB handling coming in as an input to um, testing and rework and repair and, and everything in between. It's, it's amazing. The um, well, people have questions about all aspects. You know, if you're at, um, if you think about what we're talking about, the lack of talent. You know, you're a, you're a process engineer, quote unquote, and you've had limited experience, and all of a sudden something goes wrong with your in-circuit tester, or um, uh, uh, some other process that you haven't had much time yet to get familiar with. What do you do? Well, you write a question, write a question to board talk, or now go to our hopefully go to our book, buy our book, and go to it. Buy the book. Buy the book. Always a good answer. Buy the book. First, first recommendation. Buy the book. Uh, in your more than a decade in producing board talk, uh, have you seen a common theme? You know, as I mentioned earlier on this show, we you know voiding keeps coming up. It's like oh, I don't want to talk about voiding for another hour, but it, but but obviously we do because it's a if it keeps coming up, it's still a relevant subject. Is there a common theme that just won't die 
uh, that just keeps coming back to haunt you guys? Miniaturization and sub-miniaturization right. and ultra-miniaturization. You know, a process step that you did one way, as Phil said, when your smallest resistor was an 0805, talk about stencil printing, handling, inspecting, all the things that interact with it. Um, oh, all of a sudden now you got an 0201. Oops, tombstoning becomes a big issue. Solder paste deposition, pad design. Um, now all of a sudden, 0105s, you can't even see them in the pocket of the tape, right? We have to make, we have to design smaller four millimeter tapes to handle these things properly. So um, if, you, if you look at a driving factor, it's one of the mantras of, of electronic assembly is smaller. Yeah. Right. And the other thing is also hovering over all this, a common theme, the dark cloud, uh, which has really been there ever since the, the inception of surface mount technology is design for manufacturability. Oh, yeah. So all the things that you mentioned, they all come into that and, and even more basic things too, but, but they all kind of, kind of hover around that, that, that fog. And, and we, it's just a lot of questions we get are related directly or indirectly to DFM. On the subject of miniaturization, I, I use this kind of a joke um, to make a point in a lot of my presentations, and I think I've mentioned it on the show. Uh, I talk about miniaturization in, in the context of, of electrochemical um, uh, migration issues, ECM issues. Uh, miniaturization is, is a real issue for, for um, ECM prevention, right? Because all of a sudden, th there's the lack of space between conductors uh, the reduction of space between conductors is also a reduction of, of residue tolerance, right? They just go hand yep. in hand. So I show a picture of a QFN and, you know, which is slammed to the board with virtually no gap, you know, uh, under between, between the, the board and the, in the bottom of the component. Um, and we have to clean under it, which is really challenging. And I, I show uh, uh, like a mother scolding her child, and, and I say, if you don't tell your children you love them enough and give them a thriving, love-filled environment, they will either grow up to be sociopaths and kill, serial killers or, or bottom-terminated component designers and, uh, to get back at the world. And, and um, I, you know, that, that, uh, that's just a commentary on our, the way our industry works. It's rather peculiar. And perhaps other industries share this frustration, but in our industry we tend to get new components that come down the line, QFNs, for example, BGAs uh, prior to that. And the industry goes, wow, it's amazing. All this technology packed into this small footprint device. This is great. We can put a thousand of them on a board. That's wonderful. How do we, how do we place them? Oh, I don't know. That's your problem. We just, we just designed the package. You figure out how to, you know, how to mount it. And, and then the industry has, you know, five years of trade shows and symposiums and folks like yourself and others that, that teach, how to do it. And then we argue about the best way and, and, you know, how to reduce voiding and how to reduce tombstoning. Well, and how well, to do time out, Mike. Yeah. Somewhere in there, there were some gurus in laboratories and big manufacturing facilities that physically figured out how to do it by, by often by trial and error with some amount of analysis. And then those people pass on that either teach it themselves or they pass it on to people like us. And, and then we can start that cycle. But somewhere right. along the line, somebody has to do the dirty work. Exactly. Usually but it's in a, in a development lab um, uh, or, or at a big company where they're going to, they have to deal with this and they've got their own enough engineering talent in-house that they work it out. 
but it's never the people they, that design the components. It's always the users that have to figure it out in a, oh, yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. at three o'clock in the morning in a dark lab, you know, dimly lit lab. It's, it's always done kind of behind the scenes yeah. and then slowly rolled out. And right. uh, that's just an interesting part of our industry. And I'm not well, quite well, sure. There's a mantra, there's a mantra we, we often cite that uh, goes with the, uh, the, the evolution of, of our technology and the products. And that is, you know, uh, make make it faster, make it cheaper, uh, pack in more functionality, make it smaller, and um, and so that, that that mantra it certainly just defines you know our technology as you know electronic assembly and service mount technology, but also understand it's being driven by components that have that exact same mantra: more functionality, make it cheaper, smaller, faster, and that's kind of one of the things driving that very tech. So, uh, where the yeah, trick? Yeah, let's well, let's be real honest. That. Uh, Mike, you've hit on um, QFNs, bottom terminated components, and all their issues. Uh, you go back um, when they evolved in, in putting together information. I started to keep a list of all the positive attributes of bottom terminated components, and everybody had their own uh, list of what should, what was good about them. Tops of the list is they're one of the cheapest packages you can build for an IC. Right. You know? Well, there's a lot of attributes to them. We just have to figure out how to how to but, but, how to use them. You know, right. Cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's a hard one to fight. Yeah. Well, it's not just cheaper. You can put a lot more of them on in, in a smaller space. Oh, yeah, that so too. But, it's just it's but nirvana, just, right? But, but I mean, think about it. If if it wasn't any smaller, it wasn't any different than another package. But it was cheaper. There'd still be a lot of of um, motivation to use it. Sure. Right? right. This has motivation coming from all angles. It, on the on the car talk show, the NPR car talk show, uh, there's a segment on there called stump the chumps. Have you ever been stumped on your show? Have you ever, now, now obviously your show's not live, so you don't have ever have to admit to going, what the hell did they just ask? I have no idea how to answer it. You, you find the answer. So ultimately you always find the answer or, like, or just no, don't publish mean, it. Do people ever ask us about electric brakes on a trailer? Right. Do, in car talk, have. that was the classic. We know absolutely nothing about this, but we're going to try to make up an answer. They actually did that live during the show. And it, yeah, it, they 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 refer back to it in their in their things. Yeah, and um, have you uh, ever been stumped? Has anyone ever asked you like a legit question, not some crazy you know made up question designed to stump you? But but have you ever just kind of scratched your head? I don't think and looked we've ever other? been completely wrong, but. Um, we we led people in in a direction. Somebody was uh, one I remember was um, reworking BGAs. It's talking about reworking BGAs and the idea of how do you deal with this? Do we should we put more paste down on, down to make it more forgiving and so forth? And we theorized yes, you can do that, but you know you got to deal with how you're going to put the paste down. You're going to use a mini stencil and put it on the board. You're going to try to print the paste on the balls, and you know we just talked in very general terms about that. And we said, yeah, I think we said on the side, you know, um, you can also, some people just use flux. Well, one of the best things about the um, Circuit Insight is that they get, they, they have um, writing comments and they, they publish them after time. So if we put out a new um, Board Talk episode, they'll put it on, on Circuit Insight. And then um, if comments start to come in two weeks or a month later, they'll republish it listing the comments. Well, the comment section on that was everybody who, who I, I, I repair BGAs every day. And the only thing that really works is sticky flux, you know, forget about paste, forget about paste. Forget about, we just got like three or four, half a dozen thing, technical things from people who are down there repairing BGAs every day. 
who said, no, no, you're, you're, you're misleading. Yeah. Um, you know, sticky flux is the way to go. And they were, many of them gave reasons of why putting base down wasn't a good idea and all that stuff. So they're going to fall yeah, on their people, sword over that one. Right. Well, we mentioned that I think we were general enough to mention it, but, but we certainly did not um, give the emphasis that these people felt was important right. about the subject. But, but Jim brings up a, a, a very interesting thing. I mean, the, the board talk podcast uh, exists in a very interesting form. The fact that you, you called up, it's, uh, I think it appears uh, twice a week, and uh, some are new and some are recirculated, as I mentioned earlier. But the idea that, that you, you click on it and you get the audio uh, so you can listen to the two guys whose faces were definitely made for radio. And then there's a transcript. And then following the transcript are the comments that came in. And uh, that that is really a, a wonderful tool uh, in the sense that you're not just getting whatever wisdom we're imparting, but, you know, other people's insights, too. Now, a lot of cases, it's, it's very good. And they'll come up on, you know, oh, you guys were way off on this, you know, this and this. this or, oh, no, no, I concur with what the brother said and this and this. So actually get some interesting debates. And we get other things. Some people write in, you know, that kind of a commercial aspect, pushing their methodology or technique. Or uh, you'll Try get sneak the it in there, right? Oh, well, IPC 610.3.9, uh, says this, this, and this. Oh, okay. But, uh, yeah, but are you really building boards? You know, this is this is life on the floor. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's really cool. The other interesting thing we notice when we, we, we meet people uh, that, that partake of board talk, uh, generally if they're under 35, I would say, they said, yeah, I listen to board talk. Uh, if they're basically over 40, it's I read board talk. So yeah. just a sign of the times is generation. That's yeah, interesting. Yeah. On this show, on this podcast, Reliability Matters, we have two channels. Uh, one is on our YouTube channel. So if you're watching this on YouTube right now, you can appreciate the fact that we can see our faces meant for radio, three faces meant for radio yeah, right yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, but if you're listening to it, you know, you're, you're you know, thank God you're m missing out on, on, the, on the torturous, you know, three faces made for radio. Uh, but more people... By far, more people subscribe to the audio-only version than the YouTube version because YouTube version requires that you know you sit down and basically stop doing other things and watch it. Where the audio version, you could be on your treadmill or in your car or you know, Lord knows wherever. Uh, you talk about faces made for radio, and I, I apologize to our listener-only uh, folks, uh, but just you know, just to close your eyes and imagine this. Uh, you, you say you have a face made for radio. And uh, this is the back of your book right here where, in, you know, most of the time there's an inside sleeve. It shows a picture of the authors or author. In your case, there's these just little pencil caricature drawings of Phil and Jim. And it's really obvious which one's Phil and which one's Jim. Uh, so anyway, if you're, uh, if you're listening to this and you want to see the caricature version of our guests, uh, just go to the show notes and I'll have a, a link to that illustration there yeah if you know any good animators maybe we'll have a, a yeah come up with an animated version of it too. yeah um, one of them looks surprisingly like groucho Marx. i don't know it it, it could be uh it, it could be groucho so what are, what are the what's the funniest question you've been asked do you, do you have any recollection of that you've probably no. been asked many funny questions or at least filtered through your sense of humor it's funny um, you'll get this one mike people proposing cleaning methods using glass <laughs> yes. cleaner, yes. Um, uh, you know, uh, abrasive soaps and other other things that 
like I would, I cringe at thinking about bringing them in the same room with a circuit board, much less putting them on a circuit board to try to clean it or shine them or something. I think to me, those are the funniest. I had, I, I toured a shop once that was a very DIY kind of place, kind of low budget contract manufacturer, and they made their own equipment wherever they could. And they made a, uh, a washer and a dryer for circuit boards, you know, rather than buying a cleaning machine, they, they basically appropriated the dishwasher uh, rather poorly. But back in those days, it was mostly through hole. So it was probably good enough. And then for drawing, I thought this was ingenious, uh, all scary, but ingenious. They, they created this rack in their dryer. And their dryer was, uh, you know, has a spin cycle on it. So they basically created this rack around the, the edges of the, of the drum where you load boards into it. And you remember the, the, the carnival ride that would, you'd stand up against this padded wall and it would spin so fast it would hold you against the wall and the floor would drop out. Cyclotron, I think. That's it, yes. And you'd be just stuck against the wall. Well, that was what, how they, they spun dry boards, right? They had a little heat and they had this centrifugal force and the water would, you know, just come out from under the components and, and get into the you know, drain somehow. Um, another famous one was um, putting weights on BGA components to hold them down during reflow on the top side, top side. No tombstoning. Warp, trying to try, obviously trying to deal with warpage and Warp it, uh, yeah, splattering sure. a solder paste or, or something like that. But, um, you know. Yeah. But we, we, I guess you say, you know, between things like board talk and, and more uh, our practical, you know, consulting experiences, the whole range of shops. Uh, I like to say we've seen it all, but there again, we haven't. But we've seen people using Windex to clean boards with, uh, so you get any cleaning, using paper slicers, you know, for the cutters for oh, yeah. uh, simulation of boards. Uh, so, we've also seen the old so descoring shop. would be just the old staples. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, know, I know I get all my PCB assembly supplies at Walmart and right. you know, staples. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's like... Uh, that thing seems to Hey, some of the stuff actually works, like your centrifugal dryer there. You know, it's like <laughs> you never know, yeah, you know, where ideas come from. I mean, yeah. I mean, let's face it. We all remember back in the, you know, back in the days, going back to through hole, that what was the original uh, batch cleaner, like <laughs> Maytag dishwasher. Maytag dishwasher is exactly. And, and so from that evolved the batch cleaners that we have today. Sure. So it's sure. like you never know with this stuff. You know, always keep an open mind. And a good sense of humor, and don't think things think, take don't take things too seriously, right, Jim? <laughs> That's good advice, no matter what right, industry yeah. you're in. Um, so let's talk about current times. Uh, we have a there's two types of uh, events that occur in any industry. There's revolution and evolution, right? We don't see a lot of revolution. Basically, I remember reading an article not too long ago that talked about pretty much every device we have today is just a faster, smaller, cheaper version of something we had in the sixties or fifties, right? You know, air travel is a great example of that. We haven't, we haven't sped up an airplane other than Concorde and fighter jets. We haven't sped up an airplane in, in, in 60 years and cell phones have been around since the sixties and you know, pretty much everything has been around. Um, internet's rather new, but the internet is just a combination of things that we've always had. We've just managed to connect them together. So we, we have a lot of evolution in this industry. Um, 
the, the electrification of cars is really kind of a back to the future event. It's just history repeating because the earliest cars that were ever made were all electric. You know, the Ford exploited the internal combustion engine, the ice engine, um, for reasons that, you know, we, we didn't have a good electrical grid back in those days. And he figured that, you know, uh, uh, gasoline engines would, would be better and more popular than, than uh, electric engines, which would be very limiting, which he was right at the time. Uh, and, but we've just come back to the original foundation, you know, so this is just cycle of, of washrooms repeat and make better. Um, so in this day of electrification of cars and uh, Internet of Things, IoT, you know, which I've long said, frequently said, is, is IoT is basically putting electronics in things that don't need them, and just because we can, not because we necessarily need to. But we're taking, we're taking um, IoT stuff, we're taking electronics, putting them in arguably a lot of class one devices, right? That, you know, toothbrushes, for example, that, that are now connected devices, doorbells that are now connected devices, um, smart meters that read the water flow for your house or electrical consumption. Um, none of those could be arguably class three. You know, if they fail, no one dies. However, because they're being built and, and, and they're being broadcast into harsh environments, because they go on people, wearables, for example, they go on people, people go into harsh environments. All of a sudden, they almost have to be built to class three standards to, to work, right? And even if it's an $8 part, it kind of still needs to work, right? Even if it, even if it's cost of failure is, is nothing. So I'm seeing, at least from reliability, contamination removal, reliability standpoint, I'm seeing a lot of, of class one stuff now going through hoops that were generally reserved for three, maybe, maybe two, but certainly three, uh, class three. Are you seeing that in other forms of, of electronic assembly? Are you seeing this uh, proliferation of electronics into areas that had been void of electronics in the past, uh, creating any challenges? Uh, are you know, manufacturers of textiles now having to learn how electronics work? Uh, the car industry had to learn very quickly how electronics worked, you know, worked um, in the last uh, 20, 30 years, and particularly in the last few years. Are you seeing this kind of new emergence of of standard technology into a, a new field where there's a lot of missing information. Does that kind of rambling question kind of make sense? Light bulbs. Light bulbs, we spent, that's right. Um, five, five or six years ago, we spent most of our consulting times in light bulb factories, teaching them how to build the little circuit boards that are necessary to fire LEDs. Yeah, that's a good point. And actually, I'm glad you brought up LEDs because they there was a learning curve with LEDs with the the backing material um, silver backing material and then you know they found out that there's sulfur in the air which which occurs in certain industrialized nations uh, the the LEDs were failing you're aware of what I'm talking about there so no one knew it until they they built them right and and put them out in the field what but, kind but of you talk about the classic class one consumer product. Exactly. Throw away. So right. Like, but, but yet it does go in, as you said, Mike, goes into some really harsh environments and um, you still want it to work. Right. So, so kind of the definition of the classes, you know, class three, class two, class one. Um, I think there's going to be a little bit of recalculation of those because an $8 or 
$4 LED light bulb that's supposed to work for 10 years would put a company out of business if it only worked for one year. Yet nobody dies. It's just inconvenient. Uh, but they, they still have to build in a manner that will allow the part to last for its intended life in the intended climactic operating environment, which may very well be a, a class three requirement for solderability, for placement, for, for, for contamination, whatever, whatever all the class three differences are, IPC class three differences between one and three, um, you might have to start applying those. They might have to actually start doing it right and doing it better um, just to survive in, in their intended application uh, in the intended climactic operating environment. It's, it's kind of, it's a reapplication or an application of different rules to different sure. products that we really haven't seen too much before, right? Yes, but well, we, we've uh, actually run into this kind of questions and uh, Phil has, has um, coined the phrase, um, uh, well, actually I think we picked it up from some customers of um, uh, a little at the other end, um, um, IPC class two and a half, or now I think we're talking one and a half, where where people have have always had special requirements where you got a, a class two product, but you have some requirements that need higher reliability, so you need to adapt some of the rules of class three. We've seen that for many years with class two products, and now I think what what you're talking about is it's just filtering down to class one. So yeah. You got class one and a half or something like that, where you as a as a, a developer and um, in um, concert with your customer, what do you really require? What's required cost benefit ratio, years of service and all those good parameters. Um, and then uh, working with us to translate it into some combination of the traditional rigid IPC one class one, two, three things to give your product the, the service life that it needs at the price it has to be uh, developed, uh, produced at. Yeah. There's We've a, seen some, some other interest, interesting things that, you know, uh, challenge how, how things are, are, are being judged. You know, we typically think of, you know, uh, class three, either, either uh, you know, harsh environment, things along those lines. And, of course, then we have class three mission critical, where if it fails, somebody or somebody's are going to die. But to give you an, ex an interesting example, with one customer we were dealing with a number of years ago, and uh, they were building windshield wiper controls. Uh, particularly for, for SUVs. And the windshield wiper control uh, product circuit, if you will, for the front windshield wipers was considered class three, whereas the one for the rear window on the SUV was class two. Why? Because if that first one fails, you're going down the mass turnpike in the uh, middle of a uh, God knows what kind of wintry mix, I believe it's what it was called uh, uh, in, in the winter. And that fails, you can't see where you're going. Ah! But on the other hand, you know, the rear windshield wiper, not as essential, right. especially these days with the cameras. So it's just interesting the divisions we see that where and you know what is actually defined and uh, yeah sometimes it, it 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 is blurry or you want certain aspects of, of, of class three but you don't want to build the entire thing class three uh, and that's where that's kind of where class two and a half kind of evolved with God we've confused a lot of people with that over the years. Yeah, they're actually thinking, Bill said it, Jim said it, and I yeah. can't find it, two and a half. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, for the auto industry, uh, again, we've talked about this on the show uh, before, the electronics use within auto industries, uh, within the auto industry has gone from infotainment, intermittent windshield wipers, you know, things like that, uh, that 
or maybe with the windshield wiper is an exception, but arguably the electronics in cars that we grew up with, which basically the radio. Uh, and, and if you had a fancy car, the, the self-retracting antenna, uh, radio antenna. Um, but if they, if they failed, you know, you might be irritated, but you're not going to die. Electronics in cars today are, are akin to, you know, the, the glass cockpits we see in flight computers we see in commercial aircraft, right? They're now keeping you alive. And again, I've, I've reused this example over and over in the show, so I apologize to my regular li listeners for the redundancy here. Um, when I learned to drive a car, you know, back in the 70s, I learned to look over my left shoulder before I changed lanes to the left. I learned to look over my right shoulder before I backed up. I, I, there was no cruise control. There was no um, collision avoidance. There was no adaptive uh, LIDAR, you know, uh, uh, distance monitoring systems or anything like that. So the first time I, I acquired a car, this is several years ago, oh, a few years ago, the first time I acquired a car with all of the ADAS systems, all of the safety systems, it, it was a pretty, you know, as we used to say, loaded car, right? Um, you've been in it, Phil. And it has everything. And the first time I used my adaptive cruise control that will keep a distance between me, a set distance between me and the car in front, um, my foot hovered over the brake because I was convinced that I would react faster than it. The first time I started using my um, blind spot indicators where you have a little light that flashes uh, in your mirror. And my, in the, my, case, my car's case, the seat vibrates if, something, if it's trying to call your attention to something. I would look at the blind spot indicator and look over my shoulder. Going backwards, I would look in my mirror, turn my head over my shoulder, not rely on the collision avoidance system. I now rely on all of it. I, my foot no longer hovers over the brake when I'm on cruise control and the traffic's slowing. I no longer look over my shoulder before I make a lane change. I trust my systems. They have never failed. And as a result, I am now, today, probably a worse driver. You know, I'm, I'm less skilled because I've let those good habits fall by the wayside and replace them with automation. So if that automation fails, you know, I, I might hit something, right? And... <laughs> Uh, so, so the automation, uh, the electronics, I should say, in cars, in any vehicle, has come, has transitioned, evolutionized from infotainment and luxury, um, low cost of failure, to, um, you know, human life, uh, you know, life or death. And suddenly, cars now are, are really up there at class three, uh, because they, they just can't fail or people can get hurt or property can get damaged. That's a good point, Mike. But mm. another thing with, with um, automotives is the ever-increasing temperature requirements or desirability. Because the hotter a piece of electronics can withstand, the closer I can put it to the engine. Right. And that has significant advantages in some of these um, advanced engine control systems. So the difference between a piece of electronics working reliably at 130 degrees C or 140 degrees, a, a big push I'm reading about now is 150 degrees C. There's apparently some boundary. If you can get a, a solder joint or, or the electronics and typically the solder joints are the weak point that, that will live successfully 
at 100 operating temperature, 150 degrees C. This has big advantages for implementation in the automotive environment. So that's um, another aspect of that's pushing it. Yeah, yeah, we're definitely going closer and closer to the edge of the envelope uh, between miniaturization. Um, in-use climactic environments, you know, the harsh environments we're putting these, these into and the, and the expectations of reliability that, you know, we have today that we really didn't have on such a wide, you know, a wide array of electronic applications. It, it kind of yeah. everything now has to work because everything is connected to everything. And even the, the small thing that didn't, you know, on its own in the abstract, didn't have a lot of reliability expectations now connects things that do have reliability expectations. So it's the weakest link issue that we're seeing right now. Uh, but before we an interesting thing is Mike, there's, there's a lot of nuances for lack of a better word in the, in the uh, assembly in infrastructure um, to put it that way, that, that we're seeing that are, they've been around, but they're gaining more and more important. So, so things like traceability uh, it, it's becoming almost mandatory and it's uh, that was uh, bringing, Besides a lot of medical and, and military, that's also being very heavily driven by the automotive. But we're seeing it trickling down into other areas. Um, um, another area, of course, is inspection has come a long, long way. Jim and I, you know, I think anybody who knows us, that one of our favorite soapboxes is solder paste inspection, uh, post-print inspection, and SBI. SBI has come, come a long way. All AOI is coming a long way. And it's continuing to evolve. Very competitive. It's continuing to evolve. Incorporation of artificial intelligence in, in, into this area uh, looks all very promising to, to, again, support those reliability expectations that we have or we're, we're, we're demanding, I guess you could say. So the evolution continues in that respect. It's almost a cliche, but I think it, it may be true. Maybe you can, you can myth bust it for me. Um, it, it's been long said that most reliability issues begin at the printing process. And I, I don't know if that's a true statement from your Vantage point Absolutely. is that, do you think that's a true statement? Yes. Yeah. I've seen, we've seen multiple studies analyzing defects, failures, and they, they trace them back. And the lowest number I've ever seen is 50% are related to solder deposition. And uh, the highest I've seen is like 90%, depending yeah. upon the study, the product they were evaluating and so forth. But yes. So SPI, AOI, X-ray, definitely worth their weight in gold, right? In terms of, of um, um, getting it done right the first time. If it's used properly, and that's one of the other disconnects we see that, that, that drives us crazy, uh, is um, SPI, for example, as, as I said, is one of our favorite subjects, is not a plug and play system, at least not yet. There's a lot of nuances. It's a very steep learning curve on it. And you know, one of the things that drives us crazy is, is we'll be doing an audit, somebody will have a very, very, high-end, state-of-the-art SPI system in line. You know, they paid, you know, 250000 for it, something like that. And we're noticing that every board is passing. Okay, well, let's be right here. Then we notice that the settings are set to the factory default settings. Yeah. Whoa, yeah. what's going on here? Well, what happened is whoever is operating this system hasn't been properly trained on it. Whoever was originally properly trained and operated has, uh, you know, uh, either gone to another position or uh, left the company or got hit by a bus. And so this other person is basically doing this and they're not trained. I, I can't begin to tell you how many escapes, lack of a better word, you know, we, we've yeah. seen and stuff being built in properly because there's, there's no control over that. Uh, and it's everywhere. So it's, uh, 
um, it, it's it's not only what you have; it's in the way that you use it. You know, it's for that use for a lot of things. But uh, yeah. A past guest on this show, Patrick Stimpert from a, a contract manufacturer on the East Coast called Matrix Group, I think they're out of Pennsylvania, um, invested heavily in AOI SPI systems. And together with a manufacturer of those, of those systems, they produced an article. And, and basically his contention, he's a super lean guy. He's, he's into not just lean, he kind of put his own stamp on lean. He calls it lean in and... Uh, he designed his factory uh, floor rather than a linear, you know, left to right, right to left. He designed it as a figure eight. Uh, and, and incoming comes in one end of the building, outgoing goes out of another end of the building. They have, you know, parts bins and automation exactly where the parts are needed. He's super, super, super into optimization and efficiency. And, and he invested a considerable amount of money in AOI, SPI, stuff like that. And his contention... Uh, and he has the numbers, he says, to back it up, is that any North American manufacturer can compete with any manufacturer anywhere in the world and be ex- just as competitive if they invest in automation and, and inspection. Uh, that, that's where, that's the difference. It's not labor. Everyone thinks, well, you can build it cheaper over there. Well, yeah, you could, the cost of labor is cheaper, but the cost of inspection is just the same in Shanghai as it is in Sydney as it is in San Francisco. The machines all cost the same amount of money. Uh, and with the right amount of automation, we can be ex- just as competitive as any contract manufacturer overseas, and w- which is interesting. And his big thing is escapes. No escapes. Find it, you know, fail fast, fail at the factory, and, you know, just don't let it get out. And they even publish a an electronic board that shows the number of defects they've had. And when customers come in, it's up. And, and the people who are responsible for running that department, their success or their failure is right there on the screen. It can't make it go away. Uh, and there's just a lot of emphasis on getting it right the first time before things go out the door. And Well, I think, I think he's definitely on the right track. Yeah, but I would, I would augment that to say, uh, kind of along the lines I was saying before, that yeah, you, have, you have race equipment, but we still have the people factor. And so training of people, adequate training, and we see this all the time. And let's face it, since we do in-house training and, and, and things like that, uh, it's one of the areas that um, a lot of manufacturers get skippy on. So it, it, and when you train your people properly, you're empowering them. There's buy-in, and you can't put a price on that. So automation is good, but with all due respect, we don't have lights out yet. Uh, no, and, no uh, I think we're far away from people. lights out. Yeah. Uh-huh. So in the meantime, we're still dependent on humans and we still, you know, again, training them, having them buy in, empower them, take good care of them. Um, yeah, that's, they, again, that, that your, your machines are only as good as the people running them. No, I totally agree. I'm glad you brought that up. And uh, that's where you guys or in companies like uh, ITM uh, come in because you don't train machines, you train people. And those people then operate the machines. Let's talk about training just as we wrap up. We're running out of time. Um, there's two ways to get training from you fellas. Uh, one of them is the traditional way. You know, hire them. Uh, they come into your facility and uh, um, and, pr- and do their magic. Uh, the other way, if that doesn't work out, is there's a, a few virtual options for it as well. Um, we have um, 
a few courses available online. The Ten Commandments of SMT Assembly, it's, that course is worth itself, uh, worth the money just to watch the intro because you actually see Phil dressed up as a priest um, with, with church music playing in the background. Uh, again, not taking himself too seriously. A little bit of that, that yeah. uh, quirky humor there. Uh, but there's uh, the, the Seven Deadly Sins of SMT Assembly. Uh, there are ten, Mike. Oh, there are ten deadly sins. Yeah, oh, there we go. But we're so bad we got ten. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and really. and if you buy now, we'll throw in an extra sin at no extra charge. Right. Wait, Operators are standing by. Exactly. But anyway, uh, if you want to find out more information on on uh, virtual Phil and uh, and Jim, <laughs> uh, you can check out uh, reliabilitytv.com. Then there's also a four and a half hour course available, which is a, a best practices for SMT assembly. Uh, if you really want to spend four and a half hours with Phil and Jim and dive deep uh, into all sorts of, of aspects of surface mount assembly, uh, that is also an available course. Uh, look at the show notes. If you're listening to this podcast uh, on your podcast app, look at the show notes. I'll provide links to, to those courses if you're interested. Uh, and um, if you're watching this on YouTube, just click, look down, click the show more button and uh, you can get links to those uh, to more information about those courses. Gentlemen, Phil, Zaro, Jim Hall, thanks so much for agreeing to come back. It's been uh, just over an hour of very interesting and uh, 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 enjoyable conversation, entertaining conversation. I appreciate the unique perspective you bring to this industry. Uh, we need it in this industry that could be otherwise a little bit dry. Uh, and uh, thanks for your expertise and uh, making it uh, a little bit more palatable to swallow. I appreciate that. Mike, well, we appreciate so being here, Mike. And, um, you know, for, for you and, and everybody who happens to watch this, you know, no matter what class you're building, one, one, one and a half, two and a half, two and three quarters, don't solder like my brother. And don't solder like my brother, please. I was hoping you would end that way. We didn't rehearse this, but thank you. You made my day. Don't solder like those guys, uh, but um, but take their advice. Just don't watch them. <laughs> Just don't watch them solder. Just listen. All right, uh, fellas, thank you so much. It's great to see you. I look forward to seeing you in person again. I'm sure, if not before, I'll probably see you at SMTAI or, or uh, in Minneapolis in the fall, right? Yeah. Hopefully right. so. Hopefully All right, sooner. Fellas. Take care. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for your contribution too, man. It's thank you. <laughs> hey, my pleasure. Well, that's another episode. Thanks for listening or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Reliability Matters on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or our newest channel, Amazon Music, or virtually wherever you get your podcasts. A special thanks to Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat at pcbchat.com and Ascendo Reliability at reliability.fm for syndicating this show. Thanks for your questions and episode suggestions. Please keep them coming. Send questions or comments to mike at mikeconrad.com. That's Conrad with a K. And once again, thanks for listening or watching. If you're watching this on YouTube, be sure and click the subscribe and the bell icons to be notified when new episodes are released. I'll see you again in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, and of course, keep doing it right. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.